1: Hey, hey, welcome to Disability Law Show. Good to have you along. It's another time to discuss that, which is disability law can be a confusing topic, but we do this show every week uh, to clear up some of the misconceptions, shatter some myths when it comes to this particular topic. Anytime you want to reach out to Tamar Agopian, by the way, here, courtesy of Sam Firou, Tamarkin LLP, you can do so, one 855 821 5,900, tomorrow. always oh, ready to answer your questions. Got, uh, she's built a great team behind her as well, so you can contact them on that phone line anytime and have a, a lengthier, more discreet conversation. won't cost you anything. Just pick up a phone. Email, which we're going to get into shortly here, is help at disabilityrights.ca. And if you need and want to learn more quickly, not wasting any time, short, easily, non-legalese concise memos about LTD, a variety of topics, LTD, uh, FAQ.ca, ltdfaq.ca, ltdfaq.ca is the place to go. But tomorrow, let's start off with a, a week that was a matter you've been dealing with. How are you, my friend?
2: I'm doing really well. Thank you, John. And awesome. I wanted to start off at talking about highlighting really someone's situation that I'm working on right now that focuses on the specialties that we are experts at at ST Law, which is not only disability law, but actually employment law. And you started off, you know, introducing our show and saying, look, disability law can be confusing. It can be that much more confusing, John, when you've got both issues happening at the same time and you're thinking, OK, where do I go? So highlighting, you know, let's talk, call her Mrs. M. Uh, Mrs. Okay. M came to uh, our firm to have, have an employment consult, actually, uh, a couple years ago now. And she and I had a lengthy discussion about her employment situation. And the long and short of it was this. She was put off work by her medical team, both her doctor and her treating psychologist, as a result of mental health issues that she developed by having a a, poor work environment. I don't want to go so far as to say that it was toxic, but certainly she was having some stressors uh, along with dealing uh, with different you know, issues at work, demands at work, particular manager that she had to deal with, a variety of things. Anyway, long story short, she has put off work, medically supported and received short-term disability benefits and for a brief period of time, actually transitioned to long-term as well. In that time frame she is feeling better she's had enough space and time and so she broaches the idea of returning back to work with her own medical team this is of course music to the to the years of the disability insurer and she progressively starts to return to work but it's very gradual very slow and steady And she, it's gone on for several months where she was limited in terms of the number of hours and days that she was working, but it was working well for her. And she, and she was building up John to getting to the point of full-time hours and duties. Uh, And so I was speaking with her at that point in time. And I said, look, you know, you want to commit yourself to both elements, took her through the analysis of if her health worsens, what would happen with a disability claim? If her health improves, but she gets issues, further issues with her employer, what do we do with an employment claim? Long story short, she's on the cusp of resuming full-time hours and duties, and she was terminated. So she contacted me again and said, okay, tomorrow. like, now what? I still haven't fully recovered to be fully working and functioning, and now my employer has taken the poor decision of terminating me without cause, mind you, but still she was terminated. I'm not going to get into too much of the details on the employment side because really my focus was, hey, if you're not still well enough to work at 100%, that still obligates the disability insured to be continuing to pay a top-up pay, some additional um, LTD benefits because she wasn't earning uh, 100% of her salary. And so that's where we focused our energies. Typically, that's the advice I give to everyone, John, if they've still got ongoing health issues and they're still supported by their medical team that they shouldn't be working or at least not working fully, then you don't wanna let the, the disability side go first, right? Because they are still obligated. And this is really the theme of most of what we talk about on our shows is it gives the disability insurer a pass to just bunt you back to your employer. That's easy for them, you know, and you don't want to give them that easy out because you're contract. they're contractually obligated to pay you. So, look, she submitted further um, medical information. She actually, unfortunately, had a huge regression of her health issues after she was terminated. Not surprising. And, you know, basically right back to square one in terms of her recovery. Very, very unfortunate. But We helped her through that process. She asserted a claim against the disability insurer for, you know, obviously further disability benefits. They denied, you know, we were retained. We're we're in the midst of trying to resolve that claim. Uh, And then the background of that, of course, is being mindful of what's happening with the employment claim. So I thought that this fact pattern with, you know, Mrs. M was really helpful because it really goes to show you, you, you do want to Pick the right lawyers guys <laughs> so look there's lots of disability lawyers out there so there's lots of employment lawyers out there And, you know, I just I'm hopeful that at least people are getting the right advice, but are mindful of the fact that if you've got this interplay between disability and employment, you really do want a firm that understands both sides of it so that you're not compromising one or the other claim at the expense of the other. Because, John, I've seen that, too, where people have resolved their employment claim with a dedicated employment firm, and then they come to us with their disability claim. And sometimes the resolution of the employment claim has compromised the disability claim. And I don't want to see that happen to anyone, because I really do think that the disability insurers have a very knee-jerk type fallback reaction to say, hey, this is an employment problem. And they like to point the finger back to the employer. Um, And we talk about that a lot on the show as well, about workplace situations triggering mental health events and the disability insurer resisting those kinds of legitimate disability claims. And so look, this one with Mrs. M is a little bit different in the sense that at least they supported her for a period of time. I just think they made the wrong choice that when it was a clear regression of her health issues and she still had coverage for long-term disability benefits, that those benefits didn't um, trigger sort of a recurrence or uh, an ongoing entitlement to benefits. And that's really the dispute with the disability insurer. But I can tell you I've had meaningful conversations with her lawyer already. All of that is confidential, of course, but my expectation is we're going to get a resolution really, really soon.
1: Another reason why you always make that call, right? Tomorrow and team always ready to, to tackle your situation. Maybe insurmountable to uh, to us, those of the uninformed, but there's always answers. And you got to get the get the pros on your side at 855 821 5900 Exactly how you do that on the phone and help at disabilityrights.ca. Let's get to our first email uh, tomorrow. This one coming in from Joe. We'll get Joe first. Says, hey tomorrow, I'm really frustrated with the advice I'm getting From my union, I know your firm represents lots of teachers, so I thought I'd reach out in an email first. My LTD benefits are getting cut off next month because the insurance company is claiming I can work from home, doing a totally different job than teaching. The union is saying I need to appeal before I can start a legal claim, but I was also told that I was not likely to be successful with my appeal since working from home is now a real option provided by many employers. My doctors are still supporting I can't work. What should I do?
2: Joe shout out to the teachers you know I uh, they do great work lots going on right now with teachers across the country uh, and I'm glad that Joe reached out okay because John this idea that he's being told that he needs to appeal you know what I'm gonna say but let me say it again okay <laughs> he's, he's being told to appeal and that the chance of success is low Guys, it's always low. Okay. the the Let's unpack this. The appeal process is a process that's conceived of by the insurers. This is not something that you will see in your policy, your disability policy. I think it was just like checks and balances for their regulators or something, John. I'm not even sure who came up with this plan, but it's a great plan from the insurance company's perspective because it keeps you in their process, right? So in other words, you get this decline letter you're told look if you want to submit further information we'll look at it again and you know you've got 60 days to appeal and then we'll let you know what we think again after we told you no the first time. Yep. Yeah. And by the way, it's the same person's going to look at this. <laughs> but but okay, send it to us. And so, you know, there are no deadlines in terms of the insurance company responding to you on an appeal. There's no obligation to actually have you assessed in the appeal process or even have a medical review done. Basically, at least at the first level, of an appeal, and there are many levels, by the way, at least at the first level, you're going to get the same adjuster. And and it's just human nature, right? I mean, you're going to have someone who's already said no to you, and you're submitting more information or the same information or slightly different information, and they're going to come to the same conclusion. So the idea of an appeal, I don't like. I never recommend that to people, especially the teachers, by the way, because I find routinely the insurer for the teachers takes a very, very long time to respond to appeal applications. So I think what is more specific to Joe's situation is this idea of working from home and we actually talk about this on our employment shows too, is that this isn't necessarily a guarantee. Yes, it's been a post-COVID response, there's been some adjustments in the workplace to allow for people having more flexibility to work from home, but in not in every setting does this make sense. And certainly for teachers, it doesn't make sense, depending on how the insurance company is evaluating Joe's claim. So are they looking at it from an own occupation perspective or in any occupation perspective? And we talk about this too, in the own occupation phase, what the insurer is looking at is, are you totally disabled from going back and doing the job that you were doing at the time that you became sick and were put off work by your doctors? And that own occupation is as a teacher. And last I checked, generally speaking, most teachers have to be in person. It's, It's not a work from home type environment. So already, if it's the own occupation phase for Joe, You know, I I don't think it's going to hold a lot of water, and I'd much prefer to see him challenging the disability insurer and getting ahead of it via a legal claim, as opposed to going down through appeal after appeal or getting the runaround from his union, frankly. If it's the any occupation phase, though, the, the part of the policies usually that comes in after a couple of years of benefits being paid a year or two then the lens changes and it becomes a question of, is there anything else Joe can do with with all of his educational background and training and so on that will put him in a job that would effectively give him the earnings around the same level as what he's getting for his LTD benefit? So it's not, the, it's not going back in-person teaching. It's not 100% of his salary, but it's something less, usually roughly two-thirds. And in a situation like that, I think it's too easy for the insurers to say, work from home is a real option, and this would be an appropriate accommodation, because that's not actually the test. The test is, does he have disabling health issues that prevents him from working full stop? And a lot of policies will say the availability of work or the work setting is not really relevant. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander, John. You <laughs> know, they yeah. can't at the one hand say, look, you know, we don't care about the work setting and then turn around and say, yeah, but the work setting that you can go into for working from home is the matter magic bullet, and that should allow you to continue to work. So all of these underpinnings is medical and technical. But at the end of the day, I want Joe to hear from me that that we're here to help. We help teachers all the time. You're not relegated to your union and you're not stuck with the appeal process. There's much more effective and efficient ways to advance your claim and one that will have much more legitimacy than him trying to persuade an adjuster that working from home is the answer.
1: And with that, let's get into a, a small break. A lot more questions and emails on the way, but I'm going to give you the contact information again if you want to reach out when the show is done or any time for that matter. Tamar is always there and a great team to answer your calls and have that conversation. But don't remain ignorant and in the dark and uh, you know get the information you need. one 5900 help at disability rights.ca we'll continue lots more. The disability law show is on the way. Hang
0: on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of, or otherwise represent the advertiser, the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of chorus entertainment.
1: All right, welcome back. Thanks so much for uh, joining us and sticking around here in the Disability Law Show. John Scholes along with Tamar Agopian and uh, educating you on the world of disability law, whether you've been cut off or whether you're a claim or whether you've gone to get on a disability and they turned you down, they've asked you to appeal. There's all kinds of different tricks they're going to play and you're going to get looped into it. It's going to take a lot of time and frustration. Just bypass all that and call tomorrow before you make a single move and get some clarity, some information, 1-855-821-5900. Anytime you would like to use that number, help at disabilityrights.ca. And for other questions beyond email, you can use this web, uh, website as well, mydisabilityquestions.com. It's free, it's anonymous, it's searchable, and you can ask your questions there and they'll get answered with a reply uh, for sure. want to get back into the uh, the show, tomorrow. Got to thank Joe for that uh, first email to get us uh, get us awesome. going here. But can the insurance company contact the claimant's doctor directly to get information? Because they're going to keep pushing for more. Um, right. Is this something that you advise against or can they not, can they not do it at all?
2: Well, that, that's a really, really good question. And so when you apply for long-term disability benefits, typically or short-term, either one, the forms itself, John, will include a section that asks for your authorization and consent. And embedded in there, it's the the small print, guys. This is what the lawyers kind of put into these forms. But the small print says that it allows the insurance company, in fact, to request records directly from your doctor. Now, some insurers will actually send a separate form and they will highlight the fact that they're going to do this, but other insurers don't. So when you're applying for for disability benefits, you want to be mindful of that small print at the back end where you sign your name. And what it says in there about allowing the insurance company to, you know, get your medical records. Is it something I advise against? At the outset, no, I wouldn't advise against it. I think that it can only help to provide as much information to the insurance company about your disability claim as needed. Now, I know that some claimants will go through you know, pre-existing condition reviews and other things that go beyond just an application yep. for insurance. And I'll and I'll come back to pre in a moment. But just in the context of allowing the company to do that review, if they need to do it in order to make a decision on your claim, then I really don't see limiting that access. Where it becomes a little bit more unadvisable perhaps could be in... Uh, context where they're, you know, punching above the, their weight, which is what insurers like to do. In other words, seeking documentation and information that goes far beyond what the claim actually is for or what the basis of the disability claim is. So, you know, let's say you're advancing a mental health condition, um, you know, you've provided all treatment records from your family doctor and you're treating a mental health practitioner, psychiatrist, psychologist, what have you. But you know, you had a pap smear yesterday, and they want to get records from your gynecologist. You know what, I got to kind of scratch my head about that one and see whether or not is is it relevant? Is it necessary? I mean, at the end of the day, if it's not going to harm or hurt your harm or hurt your disability claim, I suppose it doesn't really much matters. But I do sort of want to give a caveat to this kind of unfettered access by the insurer to all of your medical information. Okay, so that's one element of it. The other one I wanted to come back to, though, is the pre-existing condition clause. So this clause is one that gets triggered by disability insurers if you're making a disability claim within that first year of employment or coverage with your disability insurer. Usually employment and coverage kind of line up. Um, and so it's a clause that says if your disability that for which you're seeking you know, benefits for today relates to a health issue that existed previously, either before you started that job or in some period of time, just after you started that job, then we as disability insurer will investigate that period of time, see whether or not those health issues are connected medically. And if they are, we can trigger this clause to deny your disability benefits. Very harsh clause, but one that people should be aware of because it then requires your insurer, your disability insurer, to seek medical information beyond the period of time or the issues for which you are seeking benefits today. So think about what most clauses, disability clauses for pre say. Some will say like the three month window before before you started this, this job. Sometimes that could be a year before the actual disability claim that you're making. I know the timing seems a little confusing folks, but bear with me for a moment. If you're claiming a disability benefit, let's say today, this month, um, and your, you know, contact information with your doctor is current and everything is is up to date, those are the records typically that the disability insurer will want to see or request or review to make a decision on your claim. But when they're doing a pre-existing condition review, that takes the time frame right back to months before and sometimes years before to, to consider whether or not it's connected medically. It can be jarring for people to say, hey, you know, this is not what I'm claiming disability benefits for. You know, why do they need to see all of this medical information? Look, adjusters are box checkers. They want to satisfy themselves that they can't trigger this technical clause. And if there's nothing to be concerned about, then I'm not concerned about them doing that review. But you should also think about if there is no medical connection. So if there's a disconnection between the two health issues you might want to just get your doctor to write a little note about that. So on top of everything else, if you're going to authorize the insurance company to go back and look at other medical information, fine. You know, they may be entitled to do that. Either way, they may be inclined to decline regardless if you don't allow for that to happen. But you might want to just get ahead of it and have your doctor write something saying, hey, you know, that broken wrist for which she had, you know, uh, you know, painkillers a year ago, that's totally unrelated to the back issue that she has now for which she's taking painkillers, different ones, by the way. So if they're medically disconnected, uh, then it's always helpful to have medical support for that.
1: Hope that answered uh, that question. Want to get to uh, to Manny. Manny has used the email, which you can use any time. We'll try to answer as many as we can on this show every week. It is help at disabilityrights.ca. Manny says, hello. I've been off on disability for approximately one and a half years. I plan to retire when I'm fit to return to work. My disability case manager from the insurance company asked me whether I plan to return to work or retire. Should I share my plans with her?
2: Yeah, you know, this is an interesting one. I actually chatted with James about Manny's email. Um, you know, my colleague James, who does uh, yep. some of the other uh, you know shows with us. And, you know, his view of it was that, you know, I don't think that the insurance company is really entitled to this information unless it could have a potential impact on your disability claim. And I tend to agree. And I hate to be deferential with my, with my buddy James there, but it, but it's true. uh, Because, like I said in my response to the medical questions, you know, insurers like to get lots of information because with that information, they can try and find opportunities to close your claim sooner than later. And retirement was one of those that could potentially um, trigger some consequences to your LTD claim. For one, some disability policies will say, once you elect to retire, quote unquote, that brings to an end your coverage for disability benefits. Some insurers interpret that to mean that you're not entitled to further disability benefits. It's not necessarily the case, but again, we're talking technical legal information or language that's in these disability policies, and I would hate for Manny to get his claim cut off or ended prematurely because he decided to be forthcoming and share this information with the disability insurer Mm -hmm. when it didn't need to be shared. So that's one element of it. The other element of it is some disability policies also have a section that says, you know, we can deduct what you might receive by way of a pension once you retire, and we've had lots of discussions in our te- on our team about, you know, is the insurer actually entitled to that pension deduction? All policies have some technical language around it with whether or not that, you know, deduction can occur. But generally speaking, whether it's relevant to the insurer to know that you've retired, I think that's where you want to be careful because if they're entitled to a deduction or a credit, then they will typically have in their documentation to you information that says. You are obligated, Manny, to tell us. If you're coming into other sources of income, like a pension, or CPP disability is another big one, then you're obligated to tell us that you're receiving this this kind of income or other sources of income support, because we need to calibrate that with what we're paying you month over month as a long-term disability benefit. So look, I think that Manny should understand what his rights are. I think he really does want to see the nitty-gritty details in his policy around is there anything in there about retirement or pension or offsets? If he's not sure, you know, we're only a phone call away, happy to look at it, probably give him an answer in five minutes, um, if not less. But I think this idea of disclosing more information to the insurer than than they're entitled to, I fall back to my initial comments of what I was saying, which is they're not necessarily entitled to this information unless it can actually have an impact on your entitlement to disability benefits.
1: Manny, thank you so much. You want to follow up with a phone call? Simple to do, if you don't know already, one 821 5900 There's also another uh, website we often talk about on the TV show as well, Tomorrow, you and I, that is MyDisabilityQuestions.com. This one's a beauty because similar to an email, you can write your questions in, they get sent to Tamar and her team. But it's also got a searchable database, meaning that a, a question similar to yours may have been penned and uh, sent along. Ahead of yours. So it can save you some time if it's similar enough that you can just look at it, read it, and look at the following uh, following answers following that particular question. If not, feel free to use it at mydisabilityquestions.com. Got one here. Uh, kind of anonymous poll says, Why do some LTD providers once approved for CPPD, which we all know is a much harder uh, test to pass versus LTD, still keep asking for updates every month? Whereas some people, they totally stop bothering. I was fortunate, got approved for CPPD, and it's been over six months. And I haven't heard from the LTD insurer. I still have one year before I hit the occupation point. So uh, I was surprised that they haven't bothered me in such a while. Do other factors such as if you have a taxable versus non-taxable LTD come into play? I have a non-taxable LTD, by the way.
2: That's a lot of good questions in there. So yeah, let's try and time. tackle them one by one. Um, let us let me give it a little bit of background, though, as to what our question asker is asking us. First of all, it's anonymous, so I appreciate the questions on mydisabilityquestions.com. Um, and w- the information we've got Im- that's important in these questions is this. Um, the individual has been on claim for um, just over a year, I believe, is what's being described, and that the change of definition in their policy is still a year away before that that takes over from own occupation to any occupation. I talked about this earlier in our show. So, you know, how is that related to how much adjudication or activity you're going to get on the handling of your claim with the insurance company? And generally speaking, I find that there's lots and lots of activity in that first year, because typically the adjusters are more aggressive in trying to get you back to your own job. Then there might be a bit of a lull. but Then there's lots more activity around the time when they're trying to close out the claim after the two-year mark or just before the two-year mark ticks over. At that point in time, The insurance company has to do their review as to whether or not you're going to qualify past that two-year mark. So it's that point where they might do an analysis of your transferable skills, in other words, your education, training, and experience. They might actually have you assessed or do a medical review. They certainly will ask for medical updates. And if not, you should provide them, by the way. And they'll consider other factors like whether or not you're approved for CPP disability, even though they won't tell you that that's a factor in their decision-making. It generally is. Um, because to the question asked was, you know, it's a much harder test to meet. It is CPP disability has a test that says if you're severe and if your disability is severe and prolonged, you qualify. And in this instance, this individual has qualified. And in my mind, that test is much harder to meet than if you're totally disabled from any occupation. Mm -hmm. So look, does all of this take, get taken into consideration? Absolutely. But the, generally speaking, disability benefits are a month-to-month benefit, John. In essence, the disability insurer, when they release that monthly benefit to you in any given month, they're accepting that you've met their test of total disability, whether they are actively adjudicating or not. So in some instances, I will say, well, why poke the bear? If that you haven't received any contact from the insurer and your benefits are in pay mode, super, that's a good thing. Then again, if you're a little bit worried about what might, might be happening, then sure, you know, you could by all means supply a further updated, you know, medical report, a couple of paragraphs from your primary doctor saying it's more of the same. But if it's not being asked, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. So I think that if you're thinking about, look, how often should I expect an adjuster or someone to contact me? I think it does depend case by case, and it mostly depends on what phase of the disability policy you're in to line that up with how active the adjudication from the adjuster is going to be. But you know what, John, let's take another quick break. I want to talk about this taxable component of of the question as well.
1: We'll do that and uh, get to more of your emails as well. you still got some time to send one along. And if it doesn't appear on the show, that's okay. Tomorrow on your team, uh, we'll get back to you in uh, in good time for sure. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. And what we're reading from and returning to here in a moment is from mydisabilityquestions.com. Free and anonymous resource for you to ask questions as well. And then you can always pick up a phone. Love doing that. one 855 We'll take a short break. Right back at it. More of the Disability Law Show is coming up. Hang on.
0: You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: All right, back. Disability Law Show. So good to have you with us. John Scholes here, always Tamara Gopian, doing all the heavy lifting, answering your questions, emails, and uh, questions from mydisabilityquestions.com. If you want to send an email, help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number 1-855-821-5900. If you go to disabilityrights.ca, the firm website, you'll hit the media tab under knowledge Center. And you'll find links to our long-running TV show that uh, tomorrow and I do uh, as well, so you can tune into some of those past episodes and find a station where you can catch it uh, during the weekend as well. Anyway, back to the the note, or at least from my disability questions we were talking. It was a a lengthy one, but brought up several good points, uh, tomorrow about LTD and CPP, which is Canada Pension Plan Disability, and also this factor as well with the insurer and the taxable part of it as well. How do you navigate that?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. The Some disability policies are taxable and others are non-taxable. And we often get questions around the taxability of it. And the long and short of it is, look, if you're paying the premium, it's it's in one category. If you're not paying the premium or your employer is paying the premium, it's in another category. And it becomes fairly clear which category you're in right from the start. The insurer will actually tell you when they approve your claim that this is the monthly amount that you will receive. And it will say just below it whether or not there's tax treatment for your disability benefits and that typically doesn't change at all through the life of your policy and also it doesn't change at all if you initiate a legal claim. I think the biggest difference is is that when we talk about buyouts of disability policies with the disability insurer on behalf of our clients, when we've got a taxable plan, the conversation is, is only that the past disability benefits are actually taxable, but future disability benefits, ones that are not technically payable yet, they're theoretical and they're not taxable. So in the context of a litigated, you know, settlement, negotiated settlement on the taxability when you've got a taxable disability plan, sometimes there are things that we can do that that are helpful to claimants who have taxable disability benefits. But the question here, I think, was relating to whether that influences the disability insurer's decision-making on how actively they adjudicate your claim. And the short answer to that is no. There, there, it makes no difference to them whether you have a taxable or non-taxable plan. But more importantly, is there an impact or relationship with CPP disability on taxability? And yes, there there is an impact. CPP disability is a taxable benefit. So you will be receiving a monthly amount and then it will be reduced for tax purposes. Now, if you've got the disability tax credit, this is also Service Canada, same umbrella as CPP disability, same test as well, folks then you can get some of that taxation back, I'm told. I'm not a tax lawyer, get some tax advice, but I'm told that there are some advantages to receiving CPP disability benefits that are taxable and also pursuing you know, the disability tax credit, the DTC that we call it. And so what ends up happening though is that let's say you've got long-term disability benefits that are non-taxable. You're getting $3,000 a month, non-taxable. Now you start to get $1,000 of CPP disability, which is taxable and which the insurance company takes credit for, then what happens? Essentially, you have less income month over month, unfortunately, because now you're only going to get $2,000 a month from LTD, and you're going to get $1,000 less the applicable tax from CPP disability. Very frustrating, folks. If you're in that situation, don't hesitate to reach out we've been scratching our heads on this one quite a bit as to whether or not there's a workaround. And actually there's not a lot of law around this because the differential is relatively modest. So not a lot of people will challenge or think about challenging getting that taxable amount repaid or or what to do about their rights around that. At the end of the day, most policies will say they're entitled to a gross amount. It's gross to gross that they get a credit for. And I think that's the part that most claimants get frustrated by is, look, but in essence, I'm getting less money. That is true. And right now, as it stands, there's nothing clearly to allow us to push back on the disability insure on that element of it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily change the adjudication, nor does it change the insurance company's entitlement to that credit, unfortunately.
1: Got a a short and quick email here. Says, "Hey, tomorrow yeah. I've just been diagnosed with ALS. Does this qualify as a disability?"
2: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Yes, it does qualify for a disability if it's disabling. So ALS is one of those um, health uh, conditions, terrible, uh, a terrible health condition, because it's very progressive. And so you may be diagnosed one day, and then it may be okay for a while. And then the, the health issues start to impact your body parts. And your ability to speak and swallow and all the things that if anyone knows what ALS is, um, you know, it, it can be very, very disabling. And so, you know, I think that when you've got a progressive health issue like ALS, and I'm thinking of things, John, like Parkinson's disease, and other conditions where you may start off being okay and able to function and continuing to work, but then it gets worse and worse over time. Then I don't want individuals to hesitate as to when to initiate that disability claim. The timing is medical. When the doctor says enough's enough, that's the time that enough's enough. Now, mm-hmm. you know, it varies from individual to individual as to when that timing is right. But I think that just a diagnosis of ALS in and of itself without any symptoms that can be disabling, you might get some resistance from the disability insurer out of the gates at that phase. Only when it starts to impact function and actually really uh, impacting your ability to do day-to-day things, that's when I think it ticks over to qualifying for a disability benefit. Because let's not forget, that's the test, right? Are you totally disabled? and totally disabled doesn't mean, you know, being bedridden as a result of your progressive health issues. It simply means, you know, if you've got those symptoms that are preventing you from doing the essential elements of your job at the time that you were doing that job at the time that you became unwell. So, with progressive health conditions, John, I find that it can be a partial work capacity for a period of time and then that translates into a disability. Sure. And so that's absolutely fair. And again, if you've got any resistance from the disability insurer or only a phone call or an email away, absolutely free, no obligation. Please don't hesitate. We'll have a discussion about all of this and then some if you've got further questions.
1: Yeah, if or more likely when. Either way, it's the, it's the same number, right? That's one 855 we will try to get to another email or two. With the uh, remaining time, that is help at disabilityrights.ca and for short, concise, easy to read and digest memos That'll answer some questions uh, for you about LTD. Just go to ltdfaq.ca. We'll continue here in a minute. More of the Disability Law Show is coming
0: up. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: Disability Law Show. That's what you're catching here every week. You want to reach out to Tamar and her team, always ready to serve and have it chat phone number is probably the quickest right 1-855-821-5900 keep that number shared if you'd uh, if you'd like to for others that are scratching their head about dealing with a disability insurer you can send us an email help at disabilityrights.ca and for another form to ask questions freely and anonymously mydisabilityquestions.com this may sound obvious but there is confusion with this question uh tomorrow being denied ltd being cut off ltd difference uh, between the two and what should you do if either one happens to you? Yeah.
2: We've been trying to highlight this a little bit more, John, across our shows. and, And the reason for that is I think that people don't really understand that there is a difference and there is a key difference. If you are denied disability benefits versus being cut off disability benefits, in one of the categories, the denial that is, it presupposes that you've received benefits for a period of time. So there's a period of time where the disability insurer accepted your application, reviewed it, and agreed that you met the test for total disability, that you were eligible for disability benefits, and they approved your claim. And then down the road, after weeks, months, sometimes even years, the disability insurer then made the analysis and the decision to cut you off. That's a cutoff. When you're denied disability benefits entirely, it typically means it's right out of the gates. So. In other words, you made your application, you submitted all the information, they did their due diligence, maybe they called you, maybe they didn't, and they decided to deny your claim right out of the gates. That's a denial of disability benefits as opposed to a cutoff of disability benefits. Here's the thing, though. Either way, whether you're denied disability benefits or cut off disability benefits, if your doctor is still supporting that you're not capable of working, the moment that you receive that denial or cutoff, You have an entitlement to start a legal claim against the insurance company. You can absolutely assert your rights for benefits in either setting. And so I don't want individuals who are listening to us getting too hung up on the technicality because you know, if that benefits the insurer. That's why they lob all these words at people, total disability, own occupation, appeals, recurrence claim, all these things that we talk about, because people get confused by the quagmire of these, all these terms. At the end of the day, all you need to know is if that benefit stops being paid, and you've been told in writing that it's going to stop being paid, and you're still entitled, you've got a right to a legal claim. And so I really want to wholeheartedly encourage people to contact us immediately, either way, if you're denied or cut off. I think that the idea of subjecting individuals in situations like this, with all the confusion around what they're being told, why, you know, I don't understand why the insurer is saying this, what's going to happen, and so on. We like to be there to support people with information, talk to them about options, and certainly discourage the idea of going down through that appeal process that we talked about at the top of the show. The challenge with the appeal process is that it it's meant to frustrate. Okay, John, yep. and and we don't talk about that a lot, but a lot of people become exasperated. They are so tired after dealing with the disability insurer so much that they just walk away and they just leave money on the table and they don't challenge the disability insurer on the underpinnings, the basis for why either they're application was denied or their benefits were cut off down the road. And so I really, really don't like the idea of people still being in that process and having to deal with ongoing health issues. Because the very next call, hopefully, is one with you, with your doctor to say, hey, this has happened. I think that I need some further medical support and you know, If you've got a mental health condition, perhaps it's triggered something as well being denied for benefits. And you want to make sure that you've got that support system there, not only from your family, but your medical team as well. So it's helpful to get your, your doctor to comment on and explain what's happening from a health perspective around the time when the disability insurer may have made the wrong decision to cutting you off or denying your claim out of the gate. So look, you should continue with all your your treatment providers all your prescribed treatments see your doctor but i really do think that it is absolutely the right time to get some advice it's free you can contact us at any time we'll talk to you however long or however many times that you need or not at all not at all if you don't want to this is why we talk about all the different resources that we have on our websites you know in mydisabilityquestions.com which is totally anonymous but it, but inform yourselves because It is to the greatest advantage to the disability insurer if you simply choose not to pursue them for what, you know, they otherwise are banking on, right? That's what they want to do, John, is they want to cut off the claim. They want to make it sound like they're right and have you persuaded by that or persuade your doctors that that's the only answer and that's the end of the line. And so you should then force yourself either to return back to your work or some other work setting and compromise your health in the circumstances. And to me, that just doesn't sit well which is why I do this week in and week out is to help people who have disability claims that really need to be advanced within the process of a legal claim.
1: Let's get to uh, one more quick email before sure. we wrap this one from Schofield. Not sure if it's John Schofield, the jazz player. That'd be awesome if it was,
2: but that again, would be awesome.
1: Um, yeah. Right. Uh, I've been on i uh, I've been off on disability for over a two year mark. Recently, my case manager was terminated from their position and a replacement has taken over for about a month, Will my benefits automatically be cut off with a new person? So far, the insurer has made no attempt at contacting me. Pay is supposed to be in this coming week, but I'm thinking not. What is the usual result when this happens? Thanks in advance.
2: Well, I appreciate the email because, you know, I actually like the idea of maybe the adjuster being terminated. I'm not sure if, <laughs> if Schofield meant like termination from employment for poor conduct or whatever the heck, but look, um, from his perspective, the disability benefits should continue. There's no reason why, you know, if your adjuster changes from one to another, that it should impact your benefits at all whatsoever. The only thing I've seen sort of in my experience, so anecdotally, I've seen that sometimes when a new adjuster is on a file, they tend to take you know, they say fresh eyes, but really, they tend to take a more aggressive approach, perhaps than a prior adjuster that you might have had a relationship with for some time. So that's the only other thing that I would put in, you know, in his on his radar is that that change could, you know, reignite more active adjudication. But for the time being, there's no reason why he shouldn't rely on the fact that his benefit is going to continue to be paid. And they the insurer can't just willy-nilly stop your payments, by the way. They have to actually give you some warning. They have to put it in writing to you. Um, and if you're all of a sudden not getting your payment, you know, there's many phone numbers. You can contact them and say, hey, why, why did I not get my monthly benefit? Um, you know, call them right away and make sure you get that sorted. Uh, but at the end of the day, the fact that your adjuster has changed in and of itself shouldn't bring your disability claim to an end. If it does, please do give us a call.
1: Quick and dirty. Love the answer. That's where we're going to leave it. Now you can reach out to Tamar on your own terms, on your own time. one 5,900. That email is help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, you can go to mydisabilityquestions.com. Love having you with us for the hour. Appreciate that. And we'll pick it up next time right here on the Disability Law Show.
0: The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.